Will you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John chapter 5? John chapter 5. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading a few verses and then I, I want to open this up a little bit for you so that you can take it home with you and you can not only encourage yourself but you can encourage others and may it be an opportunity maybe even to share your faith. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which one it was. We don't know if it was the Passover or Pentecost. We don't know if it was the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know. But we knew there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was his custom to go and attend the festivals, the feasts of the Jews. Um, now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew... Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. I don't know how long he had been coming to the well, but we know that he had a problem for 38 years. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man didn't, didn't answer and say, yes, yes. He kind of had a little bit of an excuse to explain why he wasn't well yet. The sick man answered and said to him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. There's the situation. Now, I could immediately go to a spiritual application, and I could say to you, let's, let's take this passage of Scripture, and you ask yourself the question, if Jesus were to ask you, do you want to be made well, what would your answer be? Now, probably from a physical perspective, your answer would be, yes, absolutely, but would your answer be the same from a spiritual perspective? If Jesus were to say to you, listen, I want to heal you spiritually. Do you want to be well? You and I know. A lot of people would answer that question and say, no, Lord, I don't care. I don't want to be well. I want to do just exactly what I'm doing. I want to do exactly what I'm doing when I do it, and I could care less whether you heal my soul or not. Now, I want to read, I want to, read to you from J.C. Riley, who was a, a, a British, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's 
he goes back there a ways, so he's known as one of the one of the Puritan theologians. Maybe one of the latest of them. But he goes back, he goes back, uh, not this century, but the past century. And I, I want you to listen to what he says here. This was so profound that I thought you guys you all need to hear it. We are taught for one thing in this passage what misery sin has brought into the world. We read of a man who had been ill for no less than 38 years. For eight and 30 weary summers and winters, he had an enduring pain and infirmity. He had seen others healed at the waters of Bethesda, and going to their homes rejoicing. But for him there had been no healing. Friendless, nobody's helping him. Helpless, can't do it on his own. And so in his mind everything is hopeless. He lay near the wonder-working waters, but derived no benefit from them. Year after year passed away and left him still uncured. No relief or change for the better seemed likely to come except from the grave. When we read of cases of sickness like this, he gives an application right off the bat. When we read of cases of sickness like this, we should remember how deeply we ought to hate sin. Sin was the original root and cause and fountain of every disease in the world. And I love what he says next. This is so true. Take it home with you. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities. Now I repeat that. And you can repeat it with me. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities. These are the fruits of the fall. There would have been no sickness if there had been no sin. And then he goes on to explain how a lot of people don't want to be well from a spiritual perspective. And, um, but he says this then kind of in conclusion to this section. Surely if men would only look at hospitals and infirmaries and think what havoc sin has made on this earth, they would never take pleasure in sin as they do. Amen? Amen. I was in the Holy Land back in 1973, and I had the privilege with my college choir to go to St. Anne's Church St. Anne's Church was built in the Middle Ages, but it was sitting up there in the northeast section above the Temple Mound in Israel. And right next to Queen Anne, next to St. Anne's Church, which had beautiful acoustics, we went in there to sing. But right next to that church is the archaeological ruins of Bethesda. And you can go over to the site and you look down and you can see that some of the remnants of the five porches, it was back in Roman times, so it goes back 2,000 years, right? So you know it's going to be under the ground a good bit. But they dug all the soil out so that they could reveal what the 
the pool of Bethesda looked like. And you know what? I, I wasn't really that impressed. I didn't see it as a vacation spot. I didn't see it as a place where people must have uh, loved to go because it was just beautifully landscaped. It had five porches, so there was some protection there. But the place was crowded in Jesus' time because people were trying to get better. And there was this belief back in that day, there was this belief back in that day that an angel went down a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first was made well of whatever disease he had. And I, I, I just want to say this right off the bat. When you're sharing God's word with other people and you come across a passage of scripture like that, and you ask yourself the question, boy, that sounds a little strange. doesn't sound like the way God kind of works, does he? So is, is that real? Should that really be in the Bible? Listen, it's in my Bible. I never take anything out that's in there. I never take anything out that's in there, even though it may sound strange to me. The fact of the matter is that this passage of Scripture does indicate what people sincerely believed would happen to them if they were able to get down into the water first. Now, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone and they would say to me or give me a passage of scripture like that and say, I don't know, that doesn't sound quite right. Um, I would say, well, it it, it can be right, can it? Yes, can God do this? Oh, absolutely. I just, just said, I don't choose to actually take, I just am honest with people and I say to them, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that passage of Scripture. I don't know how to understand it. I'm, I'm familiar with lots of explanations that people have given. And I'm familiar with, uh, with uh, the ones that indicate how by nature those, those springs that fed that pool would intermittently bubble up and move. I'm, I'm familiar with all of that. But I have a problem when we try to excuse Scripture. I have a problem with that. So I just don't let it, it, let, I just let it be. I don't, I don't deal with that. I'm only sharing that with you because if you're sharing the gospel, a lot of times we, we, we don't like to deal with a passage of Scripture that has something like that in there because we're afraid we can't answer the critic. Well, listen. Jesus doesn't say anything about it either. Now, I want you to notice in chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says this man was there. He had an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there. He gives the excuse that I can't get to the water. Nobody helped me to the water, so I cannot be healed. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, well, listen, let me help you down to the water. He neither confirms nor denies what the people believe. So let's be careful when we have a scripture passage like that. I just can't comment on it. All I know is that instead of Jesus helping him down to the water and making sure he was the first person in when the water moved, Jesus looked at him in verse 8 and said, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Listen, you know, if, if you and I would honestly come to the Lord, if we could encourage people, 
uh, to answer in the affirmative, do you want to be made well from a spiritual perspective? You know, because face it, we don't always see the physical answers to the, the answers to our physical needs the way we want. That's a fact. How many people were down in there? How many were people around that water who Jesus didn't personally, he didn't come in and look at everybody and say, okay, everybody, all of you, you're all healed, rise up and walk. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. But there's one question that Jesus asks of us, in, and, 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 and we should be able to answer it in the affirmative. Yes, indeed, Lord. Do you want to be made well spiritually? And we should be able to say, yes, Lord, I do. I do. Now, Jesus does deal with his spiritual condition. Jesus wasn't just interested in, in healing people from their physical problems and their infirmities. He was, he was interested in connecting the physical with the spiritual. Remember what J.C. Riley says? There would be no sickness on this earth if it hadn't been for sin. There is a direct connection between sin and sickness. There is a direct connection between sin and sickness. The thing that you and I have to be careful about is, is there a direct, is there a direct connection between your personal sin and your personal sickness? That's the question, you see. That's the question. Now, when we look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to try to answer that question. And once again, I want us to be extremely careful here. So the Bible says in verse 9 that uh, did it work when Jesus said, rise up and take your bed and walk? Did, did, he, did he do it? Yes, he did. The Bible says immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now hang on to that for a minute. We're coming back to it. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured... It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them and he said, He who made me well told me to take it. I just do, did what he asked me to do. He didn't even know who Jesus was yet. But the Bible says that this man then was found later where? See, the Jews didn't know what to do. The one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So where did Jesus find him in verse 14? Found him in the temple. He found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now he's dealing with a spiritual aspect. Now, there seems to be some connection between his past and what Jesus is saying about a worse thing coming upon you. But, you know, you and I have to be extremely careful about that. You and I have to be extremely careful about that. Why? Because in the book of John, what does Jesus do just three chapters, just several chapters later in John chapter 9, when the Jewish leaders want to say about the man who was born blind. You know why he's blind, don't you? He's blind because of his personal sin or the sin of his parents. Uh, Jesus going to go with that idea? 
No. Jesus challenges that idea. And Jesus says, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No. Don't automatically assume that your personal problem is directly related to what I am saying. You see? Now, back to John chapter 5. I'm just, I'm just trying to give this to you in a way for you and I to understand that it could be. And this guy may know very, very well exactly what Jesus is talking about and knows that he's got to make sure that he deals with his spiritual condition. But don't automatically assume that's the case because it's, it's the fact that sin exists, period, that we have sickness. Now, notice what he says here. He says, you want to stop sinning or something worse can happen to you. You know, I don't think most people understand what Jesus is saying here when he says this. I think most people overlook it. We're overjoyed when we are blessed and we're overjoyed when when uh, we're healed and we're overjoyed when we, when we see ourselves out of a difficult situation. But um, so much of the time we don't realize that if we're not careful, we'll not only be back in the situation that we were in, but it'll be far worse than it was before. Let me give you a, what I consider to be a classic illustration of this. And I'll try to make this uh, you, don't, you can turn back to Numbers chapter 16 if you want, but I'm going to give you the story in as little detail as I possibly can. It's an example. You see, the Bible in the Old Testament is full of examples of people who have gotten into problems and into trouble and have sinned, and then when they've gotten out of it, instead of taking it seriously and not realizing that, boy, it can be even down the road worse than it is now, they find themselves in a worse situation. Here's a perfect example of this. Korah and some of his friends thought that Moses and Aaron were too, taking on too much responsibility. And they weren't doing it in a nice way. They were actually, according to Numbers chapter 16, the Bible says that their complaint was that you take, verse 3, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy. There are a lot of people could do what you are doing, but you have taken it on for yourself. And we're upset by that. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so Moses heard this, and of course he's very, very discouraged and very, very... Uh, he goes to the Lord about it. He fell on his face. But he spoke to Kor and he says, listen, listen... We need God to clear this matter up, not you, not me. And so tomorrow we want everybody to meet with God at the tent of the tabernacle. And we want, to, uh, we want the Lord to have his opportunity to show who is actually in charge. Because Korah, wants to, with his friends, wants to rebel. And he has a couple, he has 250 people that are willing to, 50 leaders who are willing to do it with him. And so the Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 16 that the next day comes, Korah, Korah and his friends, I don't know whether they actually show up at the tabernacle of meeting, but the Bible tells us that they were able to convince the people, they gathered all the congregation in verse 19, 
all the congregation against Moses and Aaron at the door of the tabernacle meeting while they probably stayed in their tents. Now, to make a long story short, you probably know what happens. You probably know that God shows up. And when God shows up, and when I say God shows up, His glory appears to all the congregation. So everybody knows that God is going to clear the matter up. And when God clears the matter up, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that, listen, guys, you, you know where Korah is, and you know where the family, their families are and their friends and all. You guys get away from them. Get away from them because God is going to judge them for the rebellion. And the Bible, you know what happens. You know that the, it came to pass as he was finished speaking in verse 31... All these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all of their households and all the men with Korah with all of their goods. Now, this is a classic example that I'm sharing this with you because they had persuaded all of the children of Israel to rebel. God is exercising judgment on that. When I was a kid, boy, I, I, my, my, family, my dad, we, we read out of Hurlbut's story of the Bible. How many remember Hurlbut's story of the Bible? And boy, that story just scared me to death when I was a kid. I thought, boy, that's an earthquake if, if I've ever seen one, and it's local, and it's happened, it's over, the ground has opened up. And so the story doesn't end there, you see. It's assumed that everybody is going to do what Jesus says, listen, stop sinning in this area or a worse thing's going to happen to you. And we would assume that under the circumstances he would be addressing the children of Israel. But the very next day, this is, the, this, this is after the judgment that happened, the very next day in verse 41, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly God shows up again. And this time, because they didn't learn their lesson, the Bible says that 14,000, if you'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 49, of those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident the day before. That's a good example, isn't it? That's a really great example. You say, wow, Gary, boy, the Lord is so loving and kind and generous and compassionate. I don't know about it, but putting something like, in, like that as an illustration. But that's the way it is. The fact is our sin destroys us, and if we don't stop sinning, a worse thing is going to happen to us. What's the worst? Somebody will say, well, what could happen? What worst thing could happen to this guy, 30, who's been, uh, been under this infirmity for 38 years? What worst thing could happen to him? Everybody together. Eternal death. Eternal death. Yeah. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, don't worry about the person who can kill the body. That's, 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 that's a small matter. Worry about the person who can kill the soul. What does Jesus say through Matthew? He says, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world, but what? Loses his own soul. 
Now, I see two groups of people in this passage of Scripture, and I just want to bring this to your attention so that you can kind of put it in perspective. I see the Jewish leaders, and I see you and me. I see you and me. When I look at you and me, I see that what Jesus does in this passage of Scripture, he's, he says to us, "You most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Now listen, the rest of this passage of Scripture is Jesus proving who he is. And he needs to prove who he is because the Jews, when they, uh, when they cornered this guy and said, how's come you're doing, didn't say, by the way, they didn't say, wow, what a wonderful thing. You have been healed. All they were concerned about is it was done on the Sabbath day. That's all they cared about. It was done on the Sabbath day. And I, I mean, I'm bringing this to your attention because if you read the whole chapter, once Jesus talks about resurrection day and who he is and how he and the Father work together, they both do the same thing. Because they're, you know, not like polytheism. See, the difference between polytheism and the fact that Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. The difference between that is in polytheism where people believe in more than one God, and there's only one God. But in polytheism where people believe there's more than one God, these gods don't agree. They're fighting each other all the time. They have their own plans, their own ideas, you see. Part of the proof that Jesus is God is the fact that, listen, when you look at me and the Father, you can't tell the difference. You can tell the difference because I have taken on the form of man, so we believe in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one who died for our sin because man had to die. But when you look at Jesus and God, you can't really tell any difference, and he explains it. He explains it here. There's a wonderful explanation that we don't have time to get into. And then he gives proofs. He says, I, I proved it this way, this way, this way, this way. And I know you won't accept mine because I know there's a law in Israel that you've got to have two people to prove anything, two witnesses, two people to testify. He says, I understand that, but let me give you all the other proofs that I am who I claim I am. And that's what the rest of the book is about. And the thing that I want you and, I, you and me to do is take a look at it and say, what, what are the hang-ups here? Well, that one hang-up is these guys can't get over the Sabbath day. Now, I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where the Sabbath day was so abused. You couldn't do nothing on the Sabbath day. If you killed, if, you, if, an, if a hen laid an egg, you could eat the egg, but you had to promise to kill the hen because it laid the egg on the Sabbath day. That's the kind of stuff. And I had a whole string of other ones to give you today, and I, I forgot them. I left them at home. And, and they're, more, they're, they're more interesting if I read them to you than if I try to explain them to you. But that's what it was. Jesus you did this on the Sabbath day, they eventually said. So we're, we're upset with you. In verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them. Here's where he begins to talk about his relationship with the Father. He says, The Father works on the Sabbath day, and so do I. 
the Father works and I work. We do the same thing. We work together. There's no difference in what we do. And then they come in verse 18. And what do they say in verse 18? Now they're upset with him, not just because he did this on the Sabbath day, but they're upset with him because why? Because he claims to be God. Now, I've been around the world looking at false religions and what they try to do with Jesus at this point. You know, and there's some apologists in false religions who like to say, well, did Jesus ever claim to be God? This is about as close as you can get to without him actually saying it. Now, so here, here's the... Here's, here's, now, I understand. Listen. I understand the Sabbath day problem. I understand that. Jesus wants them to know they abused it. Jesus has said many times in the word that it's good to do good things on the Sabbath day. There are plenty of passages of scripture that tell us that we're not to abuse the Sabbath day and we're not to just run roughshod over it and just do our own thing. There's plenty of that. There's plenty of that in God's word. I understand all of that. I understand that the reason why the Jewish people were in exile for 70 years you you need to try to sympathize with them a little bit they were in exile for 70 years because they had violated seven day sabbaths for 70 years and god says okay you know as far as your sin is concerned that's why you're going but i'll tell you why you're going to be there as long as you're going to be there because you violated 70 sabbaths Now, that's enough for you and me to try to sympathize a little bit, right? And um, my favorite guy, Nehemiah, you can look this up later. You can look this up in Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah, the Bible, he's one of my favorite guys because when the children of Israel are released and they go back to Canaan, when they go back to the Holy Land, the land of Israel, where they came from, the Bible tells us that Nehemiah is one of the leaders who goes back. And there's financial difficulties, there's mortgages that can't be paid, and, and people are having a horrible, horrible time of it. And Nehemiah jumps right in, and he solves the problem. And I like Nehemiah for that. The second reason I like Nehemiah is because he's the governor, and he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live just like they do. I'm not going to take a big salary. I'm not going to live like a king. I'm not going to have all the stuff that a governor should have. I'm going to live every day just the way my neighbors are living. I like him for that reason, number two. But the thing that really frustrated Nehemiah was in Nehemiah chapter 13 when the people of Israel were bringing things into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And there's a description about this that... that I, sometimes I wonder, why is that description so detailed? In those days, in Nehemiah chapter 5, 13, verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Not only that, but the men of Tyre over on the seacoast, they were bringing their wells into the wares in to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and they were setting them all up. And they brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah. Now, 
So he contended with them. And he says, listen, we've got to put a stop to this. You can understand why they needed to do that, right? You can understand how they feel or a worse thing's going to happen to us. But they ended up abusing the Sabbath, and so Jesus wasn't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath day. And chances are, you and I would not be allowed to do anything on the Sabbath day if they had their way. Uh, Very little anyway. But anyway, that's a hang-up. You understand, that's a hang-up. It's a legalism that creates a hang-up for those who need to come to Christ. He ultimately says this string of things to those leaders. He says in verse 35, You were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, in my light. In verse 37, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor Have you seen his form? Talking about God, we understand that. But you do not have his word abiding in you. And all of this is because they don't like Jesus. They hate him. He did something good on the Sabbath day. So as much as I can sympathize with their concern, I have to say it's keeping them from the kingdom of heaven. And there's a whole string. You need to go through that passage of scripture. You need to write the word. You need to circle the word you in relationship to Jewish leaders. And he says, listen, you do not have the love of God in you in verse 42, and you do not receive me. There are other people who you'll receive, but you won't receive me. See the problem? Hang up. And when we can study scripture and we can determine where the hang-ups are with people getting saved, it's a help. Legalism is a hang-up. It's a hang-up for almost everybody. And so the thing that I want you to keep in mind is what does Jesus say to us in verse 24? He said, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And then notice what he says in verse 25. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28. Don't marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Does that include unbelievers? Yes. Talk about a worse thing happening. Can you imagine the unbeliever, according to John chapter 5, who finally is resurrected? He's in hell right now. He's in dark, total darkness in hell. And he's resurrected, and he finally, for a split second, says, Ah, I got my body back. Wow, I got my body back. I don't know how to explain that. You see, I don't like to use the word transform, but he did get his body back, and he will get his body back. And the Bible says on Resurrection Day, everybody gets their bodies back. But what does Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 say? You'll get your body back, but at the great white throne judgment, it'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And I'm sorry, I didn't say it. That's what God says. So talk about a worse thing happening. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Let me close with the words of J.C. Riley. All right? Let me just close with the words of J.C. Riley. We are taught, we are taught the lesson uh, 
that recovery from sickness ought to impress upon us. Um, Renewed health should send us back to our post in the world with a deeper hatred of sin, a more thorough watchfulness over our own ways, and a more constant purpose of mind to live to God. Far too often, the excitement and novelty of returned health tempt us to forget the vows and intentions of the sick room. There are spiritual dangers attending a recovery. Well would it be, well would it be for us all after illness to grave these word, grave, to grave these words on our hearts. Let me sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto me. God is offering, God is offering, He's offering to make us well spiritually. Oh, let's pray that people will take him up on that. Pray that God can help you use a passage of scripture like this to share it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts and help us to help us to um, understand the wonderful position that we have with you in Christ. Lord, we just pray that others will receive the good news of the gospel and be willing to turn from their wicked ways and experience everlasting life. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.